0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Today we'll be talking about the state of comedy. Why? Well, it has something to do with this. We were going to do an in memoriam this year, but when I saw the list of people that had died, it wasn't diverse enough. It just, no.
2: It was mostly white people. And I thought, nah, not on
1: my watch. No. Maybe next year. Let's, let's see what happens. As most of you will know, that was Ricky Gervais hosting the Golden Globes a few weeks ago and roasting the pieties of his Hollywood audience in the process. As most of you will also know, Gervais' monologue became a lightning rod on social media for days thereafter, with some commentators citing it as proof that maybe, just maybe, we might be witnessing an important moment of cultural inflection. Especially given that Gervais Golden Globes moment also comes in the wake of a successful stand up tour from Louis C.K., whom some thought would be permanently canceled, as well as a hilariously politically incorrect Netflix special from Dave Chappelle. We've spent a long time worrying about whether cancel culture was killing comedy. Could it be that we're now seeing signs of hope? To answer that question, we tapped guest host Jamie Kilstein, a successful comedian in his own right as well as a Quillette contributor and someone who's taken his own knocks from woke Hollywood culture. Here's his interview with veteran comedian and comedy expert, Paul Provenza.
3: Hey everybody, I'm Jamie Kilstein. I'm a comedian, writer, podcaster, host of the Jamie Kilstein podcast. Today we're going to talk about Ricky Gervais. We're going to talk about cancel culture. We're going to talk about the role comedy plays I'm interviewing Paul Provenza. Paul Provenza, I met, like you meet anybody, when I was homeless, living out of my car in Albuquerque, New Mexico on mushrooms at a poetry slam. And Paul Provenza was on every stand-up comedy show in the 80s and then went on to be, I think, one of the greatest curators of stand-up comedy. He, Him and Penn Gillette made the movie The Aristocrats, where a bunch of comics, Gilbert Godfrey was kind of the most notorious, made the aristocrats joke as offensive as humanly possible. I think that's when people realized Bob Saget's got a bit of a filthy mouth on him. Danny from Full House. And then he went on to make a show called The Green Room. The Green Room was, it was booked by him and Kelly Carlin, the daughter of George Carlin. It was conversations with comedians on Showtime. And man, I wish it was around today. Doug Stanhope, Bill Burr, I had my first shot on it. Everybody was on it. It was back in a time where you could disagree with each other. Rogan was on it. I remember Patrice O'Neill, one of the most offensive, brilliant comedians, had the most wonderful, nuanced conversation with Roseanne, where they reached across and they held each other's hands while talking about race before Roseanne was canceled and and, and before Patrice died. It was a really beautiful show. I'm forever grateful for that show. And Paul will continue to make documentaries, will continue to have his hand in different comedy projects. There was no one else I wanted to have this conversation with. He also wrote a book called Satiristas, where he interviewed all the comics who pushed the boundaries. He interviewed Colbert. It was George Carlin's last interview. I was in it. A really brilliant and, again, special book from someone who just loves comedy. You can follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Prevenza. You can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Kilstein. My Instagram is at the Jamie Kilstein. You can also hear my podcast five days a week, 20 minutes of political wrap up, calling out bullshit on the left and the right. So it's Jamie Kilstein com or Jamie Kilstein podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all that. And keep supporting Quillette. I am really glad I got the opportunity to do this podcast. And I hope you guys enjoy the interview as much as I did. Is it just because I'm young and jaded that I'm like, cancel culture is new and it just started? Because I think when young comics and people think about the old days. Uh, There were
2: a number of issues where people wrote to the networks and somebody was banned from The Tonight Show and stuff like that. That happened all the time. There was an adage that for every letter you got that represented, I don't remember what the figure was, but let's say 10,000 people who felt the same way but didn't write. So there was always this sense of if the public had a problem with it, we would respond. But that was on the part of networks and studios, not so much for clubs. Clubs, you know, for live performance, it was if enough people complained to the club owner, you weren't booked back. If people asked for their money back too many times, you weren't booked back. I mean, that was the big issue with Bill Hicks. It wasn't so much that he wasn't allowed to do things. It was that the audience would just complain or club owners would say, I can't afford all these walkouts. It's an important distinction because remember, I mean, Lenny Bruce, we're talking about the late 50s and the 60s, and Lenny Bruce had to deal with the worst of cancel culture, which was government. Right was actual, uh, you know, city and state laws against obscenity and blasphemy and all those sorts of things. And and he became a touchstone for overturning a lot of those laws. So, yes, this kind of blowback has always been there. I mean, you know, Mae West was arrested for a play she did in New York called Sex. The show was shut down by whatever authorities were in charge of such moral turpitude. So, yes, it's always
3: existed. Even outside of comedy, like when I was growing up, the parents' television council writing letters and trying to get ads pulled. I mean, I remember as a gift once, you gave me a picture of Lenny Bruce getting arrested. And it's like, well, I guess that's better than getting a bunch of shitty tweets in the morning. But at the... (laughs) But at the same time, it does seem people move much faster and more vindictively nowadays. And it seems like we're seeing it a lot more on the left than when when I was growing up from what I remember. I mean, you had Tipper Gore. It was a lot of conservative Christian fundamentalists who were constantly being offended.
2: In the early days of the culture wars, which I would say really came to be meaningful in the early 80s, I would say probably during the Reagan administration, which of course coalesced the Christian right. It wasn't just, oh, this individual performer, it suddenly was part of an ideology. And in the case of the Christian right, it was, you know, the downfall of civilization. But what's happening now is was absolutely the result of social media, because that one letter that represented 10,000 people who didn't write, you get 10,000 people now because they don't have to sit down, compose a letter, put a stamp on it, take it to the mailbox. They
3: don't, don't even have put- to read the article. They, can just they don't hit even have to read
2: it. the article. They don't even have to see what it is because there's also this, again, the cultural wars have created these kinds of armies of ideological purity. I'm feminist. So therefore, if all the feminists are complaining about Louis C.K., I will too.
3: I I wrote about this for Quillette a while back where there was also sort of like a timer on it. I remember when the Louis C.K. thing happened. It wasn't just people going after Louis. Everyone was tweeting all these random comics. Some of them knew Louis. Some of them didn't. And they were like, "Will you denounce Louis C.K. You were sort of on the clock to do it. And if somebody comes up to you and you have no information and you're like, is taking your dick out good? You're like, well, no, I guess not. But there's this pressure where if you don't denounce the thing, even if you would rather do research, even if you would rather wait for him to speak up or wait for a fair trial, there's not time. You have to have your hot take on social media or else you are just as bad as said dick-waving offender.
2: Right. There is no nuance to any conversation. There is a conversation to be had about the difference between Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein. But the culture in which we live is kind of all or nothing. You see it even in politics. You get behind this one Democratic candidate or you're a sellout.
3: Or you're a racist. Right now, there was a journalist who literally just tweeted, because there's this whole debate, did Bernie tell Elizabeth Warren that a woman can never run for president? This guy, Matthew Dowd, wrote, you know one clear way to demonstrate that you believe a woman can and should be president? Don't try to defeat a woman running for president. And it's like, yo, that's more patronizing and paternalistic than just straight up sexism
2: the the crux of it all is that there's no actual discourse but here's an important thing to remember for all we decry quote-unquote cancel culture and all of this it's coming from the left because it's really really meaningful you know we're being asked to overturn cultural institutions and perspectives and assumptions that really do need to be challenged right I'm not someone who's dismissive of PC culture as a sort of like, oh, this is just pure silliness. I get where it's coming from. Like anything else, there's always a sort of overkill. Like we can talk about Al Franken. There's real viable discussion about Al Franken having been kind of screwed over in this
3: yeah well he, he, he's back he like low-key has a, a show on Sirius now very interesting podcast of his own and
2: i think al franken's a
3: perfect example of collateral damage the comics are gonna rebel that's what comedians do you're gonna end up getting far more offensive shit with less merit coming as just a fuck you. You can't tell me what to say. When Shane Gillis, who ironically in the voice of a racist used the word chink, I haven't heard that word in so long. You know how many comics I heard try to slip that word into conversation that week in Los Angeles, just because there's this thing with comedians where you go, don't do that. And they go, well, I'm going to, going to do it. And so it's good that white people aren't, dropping the N-bomb on stage, and it's good that we're progressing. But if it gets so ridiculous that so many people who don't deserve it are getting swept up in this net, the most popular comic in the world is just going to have a special called Tranny because everyone is just so sick of PC culture that all you're going to have to do to get huge is just be offensive with zero merit.
2: But here's an important thing to remember is that nobody's really canceled. The bottom line is if enough people want to come and see Louis C.K. when Louis C.K. puts a tour together, Louis C.K. is going to be fine. And there is a difference between Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein. And there's a lot of people who are figuring out for themselves and they're going to make their own moral stand on it. And there is even a difference between Louis C.K., and Aziz Ansari. And if we're using that scale of Harvey Weinstein's on one side, Louis C.K.'s in the middle, and Aziz Ansari's on the other side, Aziz Ansari's not suffering at all. He struggled, made his way through it, but ultimately it all went away because after all is said and done, the public is going to make their own decision. And if they feel like spending their money to see Aziz Ansari, they're going to. Anthony Cumia was thrown off radio for what I don't listen to enough Anthony Cumia to say he's racist. He's not racist, but it wasn't good. He's doing fine. So this idea of cancel culture, yes, I get it. And yes, people have suffered. I think, I think to a certain degree, unfairly, Louis CK has suffered, but he was physically in a room with somebody that's very different than language that somebody uses in a show. Saying a word is certainly not the same as exposing yourself in a room with somebody, which is certainly not the same as rape.
1: We've reached the halfway point in this Quillette podcast, and it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular non-fiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Ewell Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention The Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast.
3: I'm starting just to realize that the internet is not the real world because Chappelle has become one of the most hated people on the left for his jokes about trans people and the LGBT community. He used to be our hero under Bush. I mean, I remember working with him, seeing him work out stuff at the Boston Comedy Club against the Iraq War, against Bush. It was brilliant. And his last special, you go on Twitter and the only people who were tweeting about like Loving Chappelle were like Ben Shapiro. It was wild. It was like this like flipped upside-down world. So I go, they're trying to cancel Chappelle, blah, blah, blah. That's when you're on Twitter. You get off Twitter, and you go on YouTube, and it's like he was just honored for the Mark Twain Awards, and John Legend was there, and John...
2: This is where, where I was going with this, is that ultimately the people who are doing real quality work, interesting work, they're going to survive. You know, remember the conversation around all in the family in the 70s. Oh, no, you know, Archie Bunker's not making fun of the character. There are people who like him because they agree with him. And that's the curse of art, is that it's about everything and it's not about anything. It's what it is. Art is never meant to be public policy. The best art is ambiguous. The best art is challenging of conventional notions. The best art is always confusing.
3: Is there something weird about comedy that makes it more likely for people to get offended and attack? So let's not talk about like yes. Louis C.K. Yes, or absolutely. something like If you're a musician, if you're going to get canceled, All you right. have to like rape a minor or, you know, show up just doped out on stage. But, you know, someone takes a joke out of context and puts it on the Internet.
2: There's a very clear reason for that, and it's because of what makes comedy so special, which is that there are no layers between the comedian, the performer, the artist, and the the audience, the recipient. There are no layers. When somebody is writing a book or a novel, they're sitting, they're thinking, they're crafting months and months and months. If it's a novel, it's a story told through somebody else's point of view. Comedy is an art form that strips away all the barriers between the artist and the audience. Most comedians are talking from the heart, even though there's a lot of irony in what they do. They're speaking from the heart. That's sure. that's the big difference. Musicians are only taken to task by things they say, not the right. fucking songs they write. I, Although I, you did see a bit of it, you did see quite a bit of that in in rap. You know, particularly gangster rap. You did see a bit of that. But I, I just think with comedians, it's so much easier to say he said this. Well, she, it's
3: just I, them. You're so stripped. It's just you and a microphone. There's not a band. Yeah. There's nothing that. And that's
2: why. That's why it's such a courageous art form, and that's what we're sort of paying a price for now, is that, well, this is why it takes courage to do it, because you really got nothing to hide behind.
3: You know, I've laughed the hardest when I go home with my brothers and they make a joke about, like, my life tanking, or, like, something really, really sad, or alcoholism in in my family. You know, we'll laugh at the darkest stuff, but... When the jokes are handled wrong or someone in the audience is having a bad night, I think people get very defensive where they think, oh, are you bullying me? Are you laughing at my pain? You know, we see this all the time where people will laugh at the jokes that don't affect them they'll laugh at the race jokes they'll laugh at the homophobic jokes but you say something about cancer and it's like my mom has cancer we're
2: in an age where there's a certain amount of entitlement that audience members have
3: yeah Uh, totally
2: we felt it brewing for quite some time (laughs) yeah it seems now like I'm going to see an artist that artist better do what I want or I'm upset
3: especially politically I mean I've had club owners say you shouldn't mention Trump. They'll get very upset. And it's like, well, how do you, I mean, I'm not going to mention Trump just because it's hacky and everyone's doing it, but I'm like, you got a picture of Bill Hicks in your green room, homie. Like I'll figure it out.
2: I came up in the late 70s, my generation of comedians and the audiences as well were steeped in counterculture. So, yes, it was like comedy was a haven where you could do anything and everything. In fact, I'll take it one step further. You wanted to do college audiences because that was where the fresh ideas, the countercultural iconoclastic ideas were the best received. All of a sudden, they're the last place you want to work because they're so heavily restricted. Things really have changed for sure. But ultimately, what it boils down to is the almighty dollar. If you're funny enough and an audience wants to go with you, they will go with you and you'll be fine. That might mean that only the really, really extraordinary talents emerge through that particular pathway. I don't know. But I I will tell you this, you know, as far as the Ricky Gervais piece goes, I can't understand why anybody's upset about that, because he just makes fun of everybody. He makes fun of sanctimoniousness, presumptions, assumptions. He made fun of everybody in the room. He made fun of Hollywood. Yes. Which I think is absolutely brilliant and perfect, and it's much like what Michelle Wolfe did at the press dinner.
3: And I will say that Michelle Wolf got a lot of whiny, triggered, quote unquote, snowflakes from the right, complaining about her jokes against Sarah Sanders. And then the left went hard after Ricky Gervais. It's like there are babies on both sides. You know, with Ricky, he didn't get up there and was like, hey, hey, welcome to gay Hollywood. Like, it wasn't mean, offensive stuff. He was going after the powerful, which is a principle that the left used to agree with with. I mean, he was going after Apple. and uh, he, he went after Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, if we get to a point where we're trying to cancel somebody for making fun of people who associated with someone who had a kid rape island, that's not a part of the left I really want to be a part of.
2: Well, that's why the conversation about Gervais in particular is is meaningful, because It really puts the lie to, what what exactly are you upset about? Yes. And that's something that a lot of people don't really give a lot of thought to. But here's the thing. You know, somebody once asked me a long time ago, he said, does anything offend you? And I said, I'm offended dozens of times a day. I'm just not a whiny little bitch about it. (laughs) All of a sudden, everybody thinks the fact that they're insulted or offended matters. I'm offended is not an argument.
3: Now there's talk of just not having hosts at all. That's the same thing that happened with the press (laughs) correspondence
2: dinner. All of a sudden, there are no more comedians.
3: And the White House Press correspondence Dinner has always been – gross. I mean, Michelle Wolf made it interesting. Uh, Stephen Colbert made it interesting. Stephen Colbert
2: made it really interesting. Lewis Black did great, but we only started paying attention to them as this culture grew and grew.
3: Well, do you think this could help comedy in the long run where it's like, all right, fuck your antiquated institutions if you don't want comics there? Because at the same time, we're seeing Joe Rogan and all of Joe's friends who have podcasts like Burt Kreischer and Ari Shafir blow a Tom Segura. These guys are blowing up so huge with these podcasts. And I wonder if that is sort of a rebellion against the establishment starting to water down comedy so much. And in New York, you have Legion of Skanks. I think
2: it's a good thing for comedy because I am seeing comedy right now in this day and age as something more expansive and more interesting and more compelling than I have ever seen it in my entire life.
3: Do you think it's because we're babies being put in the corner? Like there's this great quote about talking about how a lot of great art comes from restriction.
2: Art comes from limitations. I think all of that is, I think all that is true. And people tend not to think of comedy in the same way they think of other art forms, but there are movements and phases in the development of every art
3: form we remember when we were starting stand-up where you just tried to do the worst version of your favorite comic right the example i always give <laughs>
2: right yeah we're like, always doing an impression of the comic we like the best
3: yeah where you're like if you like to tell you're like i guess i just talk like this about midgets or like uh with jim norton's one of my favorite examples when i have this conversation you know jim norton's talked about sex addiction all this stuff and you get an open mic version of that and it's just a right. guy being like, so right. I was fucking a hooker.
2: As Reginald D. Hunter so succinctly put it, he said Richard Pryor was so good he ruined two or three generations of young black comedy. You know, they took away the wrong laugh. Dice Clay, Sam Kinison, and they go, uh, I want to do my iteration of that. You know, they're not always talented.
3: There are two different camps, right? You have the I don't want to offend anyone camp, and you could try to fit in there. Or you have a lot of very, very skilled comics who have come out against PC culture. But again, they have the chops and the honesty to be able to take something on like that i think bill
2: burr is somebody who's very interesting exactly in this regard his most recent special paper tiger is a very polarizing special and i think it's absolutely magnificent work in comedy i think i think he's playing with so much dangerous material and handling it with such deftness and honesty and truth and vulnerability too you know he makes it very clear that he knows what he's saying is is challenging you know but you stick with them and you follow it through to the end and you go, huh? Yeah. Wow. There's a lot going on there. He's actually commenting on our times as he's talking about other things. Yeah. The fact that he talks about and the conversation between him and his wife, who happens to be a black woman, you know, the conversation that they have about perceiving something they're watching on television through a racial lens is fucking brilliant and honest, And it's two adults who love each other discussing something of great, great meaning and importance and danger. And again, I don't know if it's conscious or not, but he illustrates speaking your mind, which in his case is about like being confused about what to think and feel at any given moment. Am I wrong for thinking this or feeling that? Yes. All that sort of stuff. But more so than what he's actually talking about, it's a comment on being alive right now in this culture that you're discussing.
3: Yeah. And I think that's
2: what I think is going to be. Uh, the beautiful, uh, you know, things that emerge from comedy are going to be both articulate about what they're literally about. As well as describing this moment in time. The stuff that emerges, the stuff that has impact, the stuff that, as comedians, we know was significant, is going to be operating at a way different level than how funny Phyllis Diller is.
3: Right. I think if it comes from an honest, sincere place, you know, Richard Pryor wasn't like, hey, you know, to be edgy, do a joke about domestic violence. He was re- repenting, right? I remember Bill Hicks, after he got banned from Letterman for those abortion jokes in the New Yorker interview he gave, was crying crying, saying they're just jokes, they're just jokes. You don't cry about jokes unless you felt and believed in them. And I think that's the same with Bill, where it's like, that is just who he is. And as long as you're being who you are, whether it it pushes the line and offends some people or whether it's completely clean cut and just funny, I think the key is to, to be a good comic. It's like, you just have to be honest.
2: Again, this really is complicated conversation because I remember being a kid in the 70s, starting to do comedy play in colleges where people were like what do you got that that's a poke in the eye of authority all the authorities here at this school and in the world and now it seems like the audience is different in terms of no we we don't want to hear the iconoclasm we want right. to hear stuff that, that that plays into our safe perspective but, we, but that's always been the dominant force and everybody who broke through it broke through it with a great great challenge prior carlin lenny bruce they all broke through it fighting conventional mainstream Mm. ideologies
3: in 10 seconds do you think the your movie the aristocrats could get made today that's a really good question, and I don't have an answer for that. It can get made, for
2: sure. But even at the time, it was 12 years ago already, and you know, we had an entire theater chain prohibit us from showing the movie in any of the theaters. But now more than ever, there's an audience for the things that are not
3: mainstream. Well, thank you, Paul Provenza. I love you very much, and thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Jamie Kelstein.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.